Our message this morning is drawn from the scripture passage that we read as our confession, Psalm 130. As we prepare our hearts for Christmas and, in, and remember Jesus Christ's coming and anticipating his coming again, we'll be spending the next couple of weeks looking at a few of these Advent themes of hope, peace, comfort, and joy that are found through Jesus Christ. So follow along with me as I read Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his sins. Let's pray for God's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. You are our hope, you are our joy. You are our peace, and you are our confidence. And Lord, we come to you this morning with our anguish, our heartaches, our struggles, our challenges. And Lord, we know that this longing in us can only be satisfied by you. So Lord, I pray that you would grow our longing for you, and that we would find our hope in you, and in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the holiday hustle and bustle has started. Christmas decorations are up. You're making your list. You're checking it twice. And one of the things about this time of the year that I really don't like is I don't like going shopping. Like, I do not want to walk into Walmart on a Saturday morning, on a Friday afternoon, really any time of the year, but particularly at Christmas time. I don't want to go in there. Is anybody with me in this? Uh, okay. You know, you I mean you go in there, and first there's these mobs and mobs and crowds of people. And there's some people who are just a little too hyped up about their shopping experience. And then you're walking around and you're trying to find something that you know that you want to get. And you can't find the store attendant to help you figure out where it is. And you look for the person down here and then that person doesn't know what's going on and doesn't know what they're talking about. Like, I really don't like shopping this type of week at this time of year. In fact, you know, I wish that the whole world kind of functioned actually did function on the Burger King motto, that when I showed up, your way, right away. I'm with you guys. Let, let's do this. You know, I, I like my time. I like my time. I like my time to be efficient. Um, I schedule out my time probably a little bit much. I like my time. I schedule it out because I like my time to be productive. Um, even when I have downtime, I usually schedule out my downtime so that my downtime can be as productive in enjoyment as, as possible during those few moments. And there are few things in life that annoy me more than wasted time. And it is Advent. And Advent is the season of waiting. It may feel like that Advent is the season of arrival. You know, it's the arrival of Amazon packages at your door. It's the arrival of presents. It's the arrival of family members. It's the 
arrival of that awkward conversation with a family member that you've been dreading having, but since they're in your house, you know that you've got to have it now. It's the arrival of year's end. But the church through the ages has celebrated Advent as coming. That Advent means coming. That we would remember not only that Christ has come, but that he would come again. And that it reminds us of how long the people of God waited for the coming Messiah, but more so, it reminds us that Jesus Christ has come and reminds us to wait eagerly, to look forward to his advent, to look forward to his coming, and that we would wait for that day and wait eagerly. And so the purpose of Advent and the purpose of the season is not, hey, it's Advent, that means you've only got four weeks to get ready for Christmas Day. Rather, the purpose of Advent is that you and your loved ones would get ready for the return of Jesus Christ, who has come and who will come again. So this psalm here reminds us and instructs us about waiting. It reminds us and instructs us about how important waiting is, how essential and integral waiting is to the Christian faith. But it's very honest in its assessment, because the psalmist begins, as we well know, that in waiting, there is anguish. Listen to what the psalmist says. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Lord, hear me. I am waiting for you to act. I am crying out to you. I am giving you pleas for mercy. And it feels like that you, O Lord, don't hear me. I am waiting in the anguish of my suffering. I'm crying out for mercy because I don't like what's going on in my life. Lord, hear me. I mean, you can hear the anguish that the psalmist is feeling. The hardest part about waiting is not knowing when or if your waiting is ever going to end. So say, for example, that you're listening to a really bad sermon, and you're listening to it, and you say, golly day, when is this ever going to end? Is this ever going to end? To the more serious things in life. Like the person who is waiting to get married, and they're living a godly life, and they're waiting upon the Lord, and they see their friends get married, and they see their friends have children, they see their new group of single friends get married, and they are waiting, and they're thinking, when is going to be my turn? Is it ever going to be my turn? Or the couple who is struggling with infertility, and they are waiting to get pregnant, waiting to have a child of their own. And in the waiting and in the anguish of it, there is the, when is this going to happen? When will the Lord bless us with a child? Will the Lord ever bless us with a child? For those that are struggling with health illnesses and medical diagnoses, there's the waiting, waiting for the test results, waiting to see if the treatment is working, Waiting to see, you know, when am I going to get better? Will I ever get better? 
the anguish of difficult relationships. You're in a difficult marriage, and you are waiting for the person to change. And you're like, how long do I have to wait for this person to change? I've been waiting for years. I've been waiting for decades for this person to change. Is our relationship ever going to be any different? Or your other relationships with a family member, with a child, with a friend, where you feel that you have done all that you can to bring about reconciliation, but it is just not there. And the holidays are just another reminder of the anguish that you feel over the brokenness of that relationship, and you are waiting, and you are waiting, saying, when will this be different? Will it ever be different than it is right now? Or the person who is unemployed, wondering when or if they will ever get a job? Or the faithful Christian who has been praying for years and for decades for the salvation of a loved one, and they are waiting, saying, when, if ever, will this person turn to the Lord? And as Doug prayed for Christians around the globe, you consider Christians in prison, Christians under oppressive regime, waiting upon the promises of God, waiting for God to redeem them, waiting for God to bring peace to this earth. And they're in the midst of it, and the waiting, the anguish of the waiting is when or if is this ever going to end? So the hardest part of waiting is not knowing when or if it's going to end. And so from the small things in life to the great tragedies of life, we feel the anguish of this psalmist. But from a biblical perspective, waiting is integral to the Christian life. It's essential to the Christian life. Indeed, hear the words of the psalmist, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Consider people in the Bible who had to wait. Consider the patriarch, Abraham and Sarah, waited for decades for their promised son to be born. The people of God waited, once they were in Egypt, waited for centuries to be delivered out of Egypt. And then once they were delivered out of Egypt through the Exodus, they waited and wandered for 40 years through the desert, wondering when or if their wandering in the desert is ever going to end. And then once they finally obtained the promised land, they waited another 400 years before the kingdom was secured under David. And then after David, the Old Testament prophets waited and called the people to wait for the coming Messiah. And then the people of God were, through their disobedience, were sent into exile as a judgment upon them, and they waited 70 years to return home. And then consider just the waiting of the people of God for the Messiah himself. Consider it this way. In the year 1446, from the going forth of the people of God from Egypt under Moses, in the year 1032, from the anointing of David as king, in the 600th year of the prophecy of Jeremiah, in the 194th Olympiad, in the 42nd year of the reign of the Emperor Octavian Augustus, Paul writes, when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of the waiting had reached its climax, God sent forth his son, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and nine months later, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was born to a manger in Bethlehem. Waiting is integral to the Christian life. It's not just integral because it's a reality of something that we have to deal with. 
but many passages of Scripture call on us to actively wait, to intentionally wait, to deliberately wait. Consider one such passage, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1 through 4. The psalmist in the, the Isaiah writing in the midst of the anguish of the people, in the midst of waiting for God to do something, cries out, Oh Lord, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. And then he goes on to say, As you did when of old, as of days gone by, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. He's saying, Lord, we are waiting for you. We are waiting for you. And then he says this, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. That the position of faith, of faithful believers, is to wait for the Lord. To wait for the Lord to act. For there is no God like beside you who acts for those who wait for him. And there are many other passages of scripture with a similar call. Several of them are listed for you in your sermon guide this morning. What does all this biblical call to waiting mean? The reality is this. Is that waiting is unavoidable. Don't be surprised when in your life that there are deep-seated longings that you have, deep-seated yearnings of your soul that are not being satisfied, some that will not be satisfied in this lifetime, and you are waiting and yearning for it. It is unavoidable. Don't be surprised by it. It's actually deliberately, in, it's a deliberate part of God's plan for you. And what that means is that waiting is not only unavoidable, but it is purposeful. That your waiting, despite how it feels, is not in vain. It is not wasted. It is not purposeless. It is not your waiting is not just some frivolous delay until you can get through the checkout line in Walmart. And your waiting is purposeful because it is formative. For it seems that it is in waiting, maybe go a step further, that it is only in waiting is our reliance upon God cultivated. It is only in waiting that our hope in the Lord grows. It is only in waiting that our longing for God continues to increase. And it seems that it is only through waiting that our hearts grow in compassion for co-waiters. For people who are suffering in the anguish of life, it only seems in our own waiting that we grow in compassion for them. Waiting produces in us and produces in you a God-honoring dissatisfaction with the status quo. A God-honoring dissatisfaction that hopefully brings you to the realization that there is nothing in this world that can satisfy the deep longing of your soul. And as C.S. Lewis says, maybe that's an indication that you were created for another world. Not only is it formative, but waiting is instructive. Waiting reminds us that we are not in control. Waiting reminds us that the world does not revolve around me in the claustrophobic confines of my own self-defined little world. Waiting reminds us and shakes us to know, you know, that when it is so easy to get caught up in our own plans, and we get caught up in our own plans and we're convinced that everything that we do is absolutely and crucially important right now, That's what makes waiting so frustrating, is it not? But also what makes it so valuable and instructive. 
in the midst of the things that we feel are so vitally important is that waiting reminds us, is a gracious reminder that there is someone who is more loving, who is wiser than us, who is gracious, and he is the one who is in the control of the universe and not you and not me. Waiting is integral to our faith. But in the experience of waiting, there is more. It's not just void. For in waiting, there is hope. The psalm, I think, identifies two major areas. There is the hope of forgiveness, and that hope of forgiveness is available to you now. The psalm begins, verses 1 through 2, as we saw, with the psalmist crying out for God's mercy. Lord, hear my pleas for mercy. The psalmist knows that he does not deserve God's mercy. He knows that he makes no claim upon the Lord, that he cannot presume upon any action of his. The psalmist knows that. For he says in verse 3 through 4, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, that is, if you, O Lord, kept a record of the wrong things that I have done, if you, O Lord, kept track of all the ways that I and any person has violated your law and violated your decrees, if you, O Lord, marked iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The answer is no, not one. Not one person could stand before the judge of, of heaven and earth. The psalmist is keenly aware of his own sinfulness and that each person is indeed a sinner, one who sins, that is, that they have done things and said things and thought things that they have not to have done, said, or thought, and there are things that God commanded them to do and commanded them to say and commanded them to think that they did not do, all of those being violations of God's law and deserves God's wrath and punishment for breaking his law. And so the psalmist says, Lord, who could stand before you? No one. If you, Lord, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? No, not one. But with you, there is forgiveness. With you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. The psalmist entrusts himself to the character of God. He entrusts himself that God can make a way for sinners to be forgiven. That God would make a way for sinners to be forgiven. That God would provide a means for our guilt to be replaced. For our shame to be covered with beauty and with dignity. You know, I think this psalmist would really like Christmas. Because as we celebrate Christmas, we stand on this side of the cross. And we look not forward hoping that God would make a way, but we look back to what Jesus Christ has done and we say, yes, hallelujah, God has made a way. And he has made a way through the person of Jesus Christ. A way for our sins to be forgiven that if we turn and trust in him, if we acknowledge before him and say, Lord, who could stand? Surely not I. But my hope and trust is in Jesus Christ who died on the cross in my place and rose from the grave, that I might stand before you, not cowering in fear, but that I would stand before you forgiven. This reality of the hope of forgiveness, this reality where your guilt and shame is removed, is available to you right now. You don't have to wait for it. In fact, Scripture and the psalmist would urge you to embrace it. And for those of you here that haven't trusted in Christ, that you're still trying to make sense of these things, you need to know that there is an experience of God, that there is the hope of forgiveness that could be a present reality in your life. 
for new life and life abundant for you to begin to experience that right now. And it comes by turning and trusting in Jesus Christ. At the same time, for those of you who are Christians, what this means is that it's true for you too. That the hope of forgiveness is available for you right now, again. That when you do something wrong, that when you are experiencing guilt and shame for your actions or the things that you have done, what the psalmist is calling you to is don't wallow in your guilt. Don't wallow in your misery saying, oh, I can't believe that I did this again. I've, I've sinned this way so many different times. You know, I guess this is just the way that it's going to be. You know, let me go punish myself in some form. I'm just going to be miserable. I can't go to God. I can't talk to God. I can't stand before him. When could you ever? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. What this means is to turn and embrace the forgiveness that is offered to you, to turn to Christ and to trust in him and to rely upon him and to embrace the forgiveness that is given to you right now in this moment. Rush to him, confess your sin, and embrace the forgiveness that he has offered to you because there is hope for your despair. There is hope for your sinfulness in the forgiveness through Jesus Christ. There is hope for you to stand before God with your head held high and stand there as one who is completely and totally and utterly forgiven. In waiting, there is the hope of forgiveness, and it is available to you right now. But more than that, and yes, better than that, there is also the hope of redemption. Look at what the psalmist says. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. And again, in verse 7, O Israel, that is the people of God, O people of God, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him plentiful redemption. That the redemption that God works in your life is not just the bare minimum, but it is plentiful, and he will redeem Israel. He will redeem the people of God from all his, all their iniquities, all of their sins, that God's redemption that he brings and the hope of redemption is not just for an individual person, but it is for his people. And the New Testament broadens this, and actually the end of Isaiah broadens this and says that God's redemption isn't just for the people, it is for the entire earth, it is for the entire created order. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, picks up this theme of the hope of redemption and the calling of Christians to wait eagerly, to actively wait for God's redemption. He says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, I consider that the anguish of waiting in this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Skipping forward. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Groaning, waiting, experiencing the anguish. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, that is receiving the full inheritance as a child of God. As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, 
we were saved. Now, hope that is not hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. See the difference between godless waiting and the waiting for Christians is that for the Christian, their waiting has a definitive end. That the waiting of the deepest yearnings and longings of your soul will come to an end. That there is a satisfaction that is coming that is far beyond what you can comprehend. But for the Christian, as we wait, we wait knowing not just when, but knowing that, yes, it is a, when will this happen, but it will happen. The psalmist says, the, uses the word in verse 6, he says, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. When the watchman goes on his shift, he is not wondering, I wonder if morning is ever going to come. Sunrise will be at dawn. There is a definitive end. He watches through the darkness of the night because an end is coming that brings him great joy. It is not in question of if, only a question of when. I think the idea of biblical hope is kind of like Christmas, how we experience Christmas. We can say, I hope for Christmas. That hope, the hope for Christmas is not some sort of wishful thinking that, you know, I hope that maybe Christmas Day will actually come. No, Christmas Day is coming whether you're ready or not. Like, it will be here in 21 days, right? It is a certain reality. So we hope for Christmas because it is certainty is not in question. What Paul calls us to in, the all, of, in all of Scripture is to hope in the Lord, to wait on the Lord, because there is a certain future. There is an end to the struggle. There is an end to the yearning. The future is not in question, but there is a definitive end that is a future reality. And so in this present moment, what we do is we wait. We wait, as Paul says, with eager longing. We wait with patience. We wait in the certain hope. And the amazing thing is that as we do so, what God does in us is that that hope grows. And that yearning for God grows and that hunger for him grows. Indeed, the mark of a Christian is tireless, expectant, hope-filled waiting on the Lord. Yes, in waiting there is hope. But there's also a, another present experience of waiting as you wait in faith upon the Lord. It is in waiting there is steadfast love. Verse 7. O Israel, O people of God, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love. This biblical concept of God's undurring, unending, never stopping, never changing, never giving up, unending love. His steadfast love. And his steadfast love, for with the Lord there is, present tense, steadfast love for you in this moment, to experience in this moment. In your waiting, God will meet you. God upholds you. God surrounds you and carries you with his steadfast love. And he does so in a way, I don't really know how to explain it, 
he, he meets you with his steadfast love in a way that really is incomprehensible to those who haven't directly experienced it. You know, last week at our Thanksgiving service, it was such a wonderful time of hearing the stories of God's faithfulness, God's grace, God's steadfast love at work in people. And we as a church body, you shared remarkable stories of God's steadfast love for some of you through what was an incredibly awful year. And some of you got up and shared and said, you know, if I knew going into this year all that would have happened, I have, I have no idea how I would have comprehended it. I have no idea how I would have gotten through. But I stand on this side and I look back and I say that God is faithful. That the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. That there is a steadfast, the steadfast love of God is experienced in, in a way that is incomprehensible to those who, who haven't gone through that. And the hope and encouragement is that if you are heading into a season of life where there is tremendous anguish, it is calling you, Scripture calls you to wait on the Lord and to seek Him, to know His steadfast love, and He will meet you. He will uphold you. You know, I think through about the um, words of a song by Laura Story that many of you know. Many of you have met her and have talked to her, and, you know, her own personal story is that her husband... Uh, you know, had a brain tumor that was removed, and as a result, had massive memory loss, massive incapacitation, uh, couldn't go back to work, um, could only remember her as she was a very young girl long before they were married. And she is still holding out for the hope of healing and the hope of redemption. But in her song, one of her songs, she writes, you know, because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? What if my greatest disappointments or the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst that this world can't satisfy? What if the trials of this life, the rain, the storm, the hardest nights, are your mercies in disguise. That's the lyrics of someone who knows what it means to experience the steadfast love of the Lord in the anguish of waiting. And if you're here this morning in the midst of the anguish of waiting, there is steadfast love for you. And turn to the Lord. Turn towards him to experience that. Use the words of the psalmist that it wouldn't just be the words of the psalmist that you read, but the words of your own heart that says, my soul waits for the Lord. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Make that your own prayer and profession of faith. And if there are some of you here who are, and you are facing seasons of waiting, you are facing seasons of anguish that you that you look at it and you cannot comprehend that there is possibly a sunrise in the darkness of the night into which you are staring. I would love to connect you with some people in this church who are co-waiters with you. Brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in the faith faith, who have gone before you in intense suffering and who would love to help you know 
the steadfast love of the Lord and to experience the steadfast love of the Lord in your waiting. And it is available to you. In waiting, there is anguish. But in waiting, there is hope. And there is steadfast love. And the church around the globe has set aside the season of Advent as a season of waiting, as a season to actively cultivate within us an eager longing for the coming of Jesus Christ. That in Advent, that we would, yes, remember that God has come to earth, that we would anticipate celebrating on Christmas Day, but more than that, that we would anticipate that the celebration that we experience as families on Christmas Day is a mere drop in the bucket compared to the wondrous celebration that we will experience with Jesus Christ at his return. So when we gather together and we sing Christmas songs, and as you hear Christmas carols being played on the radio and in your household, and you hear songs that say things like we sung today, O come, O come, Emmanuel. What are we singing? We're not, we're not pretending to, we're not doing some sort of role play, pretending to be the ancient people of Israel, uh, longing for the day when Jesus would be, would, would be born. No, rather, when we say, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we are seeking the Lord, singing to the Lord, a statement of our eager waiting that Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, God with us, that he would return and bring the fullness of his redemption and that he would make everything gloriously right. And when we sing a song like Joy to the World, and you sing a line like, let every heart prepare him room, you know, that isn't some backhanded slap at the innkeepers in Bethlehem who said to Mary and Joseph, no vacancy. No, rather, it is a prayer that we, that every heart indeed would be prepared, that every heart would be prepared to meet the judge of the universe, that everyone would be prepared to meet their judge and maker unafraid, that they would be prepared to stand in the presence of God and say, I stand here, Lord, knowing that if you marked iniquity, who could stand? But I stand here not on my own, but I stand here covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And because of that, I stand here as one who is adopted into your family. And so we say, let every heart prepare him room so that they could be able to stand before the Lord, unafraid, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When we sing a song like, Come, Thou Long-Expected Jesus, which we will sing in a couple moments, we are professing, we are declaring that we are waiting, waiting eagerly, waiting longingly, waiting expectantly for Jesus Christ to return. So, in the next several days and weeks, when you are standing in the line at Walmart and you are experiencing the anguish of waiting, turn that waiting into actively waiting on the Lord. Let the waiting and the frustration that you would be experienced, may that be a reminder to you this Advent season to wait upon the Lord. May it be a reminder to you to profess along with the psalmist my soul waits upon the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you.
And Lord, I confess, I don't like waiting. I don't like anguish. I don't like frustration, pain, suffering, all those things. I don't like any of them. But you, Lord, have made them to be integral in the Christian life. For, Lord, within each one of us, there are yearnings and desires. There's achings in our hearts, Lord, some of the which that will not be satisfied until you return. So, Father, I pray that you would so work in us that when we are aching, when we are in anguish, that we would not simply yearn for our anguish to go away, but, Lord, that we would yearn for you to return, for you to come back and make all things right, for you to be the one who satisfies abundantly, prolifically, and plentifully the deep, desi- the deep desires of our souls. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, we pray. Amen.